When I decided it was time to move on from The Daily Show, I was uncertain and randomly, as I was walking to work, I ran into Colin on the street. And it was a rainy day and Colin took the time, the same time he would take for me when I was 19 to just like mentor me and talk to me about stuff. And we went and we stood under the awning of a Hooters at like, I don't know, 8.30 in the morning. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. If it's your first time tuning in, Employee of the Month is a glimpse into the working lives of people I admire. They tend to have a moral compass, take their work but not themselves too seriously, and make the world a little bit of a better place. That's why I'm super excited to bring you my interviews today. Up first is Wyatt Senek. He became... I'd say known to the world on The Daily Show, but he's also written for King of the Hill, which was a great animated series. We spoke about that as well. He may have seen him on Last Man on Earth to Medicine for Melancholy. And I am so thrilled at his most recent show, which is HBO's Problem Areas. It is the first socially thoughtful political comedy show that actually focuses on activists on the ground and people who every day not only put their lives on the line, but are genuinely making tangible differences all over the world. So whether it's in L.A., looking at a homeless issue in Tent City, to going across the world, I highly recommend his show. And when you listen to our interview, which was recorded live at the Bell House in Brooklyn, you will know why. After Wyatt, you'll get to hear from Nagin Farsad, who's also one of my favorites. I'd love to do her show. Um, it's so wonderful to be a regular on her show, which is called Fake the Nation. Um, you should definitely check it out. And we spoke about like, well, okay, if it's social justice, can you still be funny? And the answer is yes, because how painful is it to be around people who have no sense of humor? You do know what I'm talking about. You are in the same holiday season that I am. Whatever you celebrate, whether it's the solstice, Kwanzaa, Christmas, Hanukkah, you too have endured someone who lacks a sense of humor. And it is almost as bad as a boring narcissist, which I just encountered today. And that one seems really unfair. If you're going to be narcissistic, at least make it interesting. Nagin, you may recognize from her phenomenal book, How to Make White People Laugh, as well as her docuseries, Muslims Are Coming. And um, she's also on High Maintenance on HBO. So first up, let's talk to Wyatt. Here it goes. Wyatt, I, I stole you some whiskey. Oh, thank you. I don't think you stole it. I think it's... Borrowed? It's, well, no, you can't borrow whiskey. That's, I mean, that assumes you drink enough that you'll throw it up <laughs> and then try to put that back in the bottle, which I don't know if anyone would appreciate that. I mean, it is how bees make honey, so maybe <laughs> you could make some sort of stronger, more powerful whiskey that's been... You know, it's been, like, filtered through your liver. Liver-filtered whiskey. Yeah. Would you like some locally um, filtered liver whiskey? That's not... Don't don't sort of sell this the wrong... That's a lot of fucking whiskey. (laughs) Jesus. She's a... You're a wonderful... Like, you're a terrible bartender. But... To the business. But to, like, the... Customers. Customer... They're going to love you. Yeah. After this, are you going to be bartending at... Uh, at you just the said they're bar- not going to hire me. 
Well, I, yeah, they might still. Who knows? It is, I had a little backstage. It is very delicious. Um, and yeah, I'm going to take a little nip right now. You realize you're just encouraging alcoholism. Um, oh, and you're still cool with it. You should take a little nip. Take, I'm, pass it down. But don't everyone drink at all because I need some. Yeah, this is how we come together as a society. This is amazing. If we did more of this, just communal passing a glass of whiskey around, almost like Jesus, I've split a bottle of whiskey between 400 people. The Belhas staff is probably not happy about this right now, that I've said, oh, I can feed you all on one glass. Uh, That goes against their business model. It's very good, yeah. It's good. And so many people are not afraid of HPV. It's amazing. Ah, we've, all got, we've all got something. <laughs> Specifically that. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the last time I interviewed, I had a really important question that I, I, um, means a lot to me, if, if, if you could answer again. but um, The last time you interviewed me? Yeah. Okay, this was some time ago. Like nine years. You were working so on you've the- been waiting to yeah. ask this question for nine years. Yeah. All right. You were working on the the Daily Show, and at the end of the Daily Show, they they credit um, a designer for the suits. And I was curious if you got to keep the suits. Like, do all the correspondents get to keep the suits, or is it just for the host? When I started at the Daily Show, uh, we had to provide our own suits. Byos. What's that? Bring your own suit. Yes. Yeah. There was not. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You all are the good side. You all, no, you can have. Would you like a little? Yeah, come on. I love it. No one cares about HPV. That's what we're learning. (laughs) We're all in this together, except for the person in the second row who is very clearly on their phone. And my mother. Uh, That was your mom? Oh, yes. Oh, well, all right. It's fine, then. If it's mom, it's fine. Mom, go ahead. Get on your phone. Is there any more whiskey? Is there any more whiskey? Nah. Your parents don't come to your office? Um, um, anyway. I'm not bitter. That's the important thing. So when I started The Daily Show... But I am single. We, yeah. uh, our suits weren't provided. <laughs> and so we had to buy our own suits. So uh, when I started, I had, I think, one suit... That just kind of got musty and filthy over time because they also didn't dry clean it. So you were... Or you didn't dry clean it. Yeah, but on Game of Thrones, they don't make... (laughs) Like, hey, Peter Dinklage, take your fucking weird cape to the dry cleaners. That one's on you. It's actually probably expensive. Yeah. Hey, mother of dragons, why don't you fucking take your old ball gown thing and... Yeah, just go take that to the local Martinizing and let them have a go with it. Yeah, no, it's, I, it's wardrobe. I, yeah. yeah, I expected somebody would give a shit. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, so they didn't cover that. And then I think in my second year at the show, we had changed wardrobe people and... We uh, got a wardrobe person, this woman, Kayla Wool, who now works on Last Week Tonight, and very wonderful person. She reached out to, I think, J. Crew and said... Oh, nice. You upgraded. 
Well, she said, hey. I think there were men's warehouse before that. Uh, well, no, it was whatever you could get. So for somebody, I'm sure it was Men's Warehouse. Uh, but she, or no, it wasn't J. Crew. I think it was Banana Republic. And Banana Republic Not said, uh, sure, we'll give each correspondent, I think, a suit a year or maybe like two suits, uh, which was great for like me and John Oliver and Asif Manvi all could wear. Uh, like we we all kind of come off the rack pretty easily without tailoring, but uh, I remember both uh, when I started it was Rob Riggle and Jason Jones. They were like, "Yeah, we need suits that actually like our arms can fit into." <laughs> Whereas Asif, John, and I were noodle armed fellas. Yeah. Perfect for a Banana Republic suit. That should be their tagline. Yeah. It's the suit for the noodle arm. <laughs> Banana Republic. I, I, it also just shows, because uh, Rob Riggle was in the military. He was, and yes, a Marine. Jason Jones, he ruined a Scrabble game I was in, and I've never forgiven him. Oh, um, well, I'm, But I'm I, glad that he got suits tailored. I don't think he did. He wouldn't wear them, so he then still was going and buying his own suits. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. It's a little peek behind how TV works. <laughs> Should any of you audition for a show, whether it be Game of Thrones or The Daily Show, be prepared to bring your own wardrobe. And dragons. I feel, okay, well, the dragons is, a, is a, our only segue um, to my next question, which I, I really wanted to show off this show that you're on. It's a digital show. I think it could be on TV, but um, it's Topic, a.k.a. Wyatt Senak. Sure. Um, so I'm going to play a little, can we play a little clip from it? What if I said no? You can say no. No, that's fine. You can show it. Okay. Would you guys eat a banh mi bratwurst? How many little bratwurst be a bratwurst and a banh mi be a banh mi? Let's just ease up with the, the fusion food. I don't need every restaurant in Brooklyn's take on ramen. Really, Felix? Because I feel like I've seen you eat a lot of ramen. No. You know you can't bring that in here. Uh, what, the stroller? It's cool. It won't take up much room. No, the baby. This is a bar. <laughs> It's true, it is a bar. Uh, Wyatt, how, how do you balance work and family life? How do you feel about um, children? I've abandoned my family a long time ago, so it makes it much easier. Yeah, um, I'm learning yeah. tonight. Oh, yeah. Well, that seemed like your mom abandoned you. She yes. was yes. like, let's see what's happening on Instagram. Yes. Sounds like a very accurate window into my life. This show is so great at making fun of, of uh, Brooklyn. I was curious, did you, why did you choose digital versus television, or is that not a choice? I was just curious. <laughs> I'm very grateful for Topic for uh, letting me do the show. Initially, when I thought about it, it was honestly something that I had pitched around as a television series, and I pitched it around, and people were like, oh, that sounds like a cool idea. And then they never called back. And so uh, what was nice was that topic was like, like I reformatted as like, well, if I try to do it as a web series, what does it look like? And it didn't change a ton, but uh, I kind of wrote those scripts and topic was into it and they were incredibly supportive. And, uh, and then at the end of it all, we put the show out and we wound up getting nominated for an Emmy and we did not win, but it did feel like this nice validation for the places that 
I had gone to try to pitch it as a TV show where it was like, hey, yeah, I, look, look at this. We didn't win an Emmy, so bet you feel pretty dumb right now, Hulu. It is, it is a hilarious show, and I feel like you can tell them you got the Employee of the Month award twice, so that might help if you ever want to pitch it again. Sure, yeah. And I was also curious, because you, you play a, a part-time superhero in, in, the, in the show. Sure. And you have done animation and, and graphic novels. Yeah, I know that you like graphic novels, but I was just curious. Do you, do you have any interest in writing you know, superhero or, or graphic novel type of work? I've, I've written tiny things for comic books. Uh, I've never done like a big comic book or anything like that. I've, I've often thought about it. Um, my... One of my friends from childhood is a comic book writer. Brian Vaughn. Brian K. Vaughn, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, uh, we went to second grade together. Um, and he's the person who actually got me into comic books. So there's an aspect of thinking about writing comic books that's a little intimidating when uh, the closest person to the world of comic books that you know is a super talented writer and that when his name comes up, three people at the bell house are like, woo, yeah. Even though more people probably should have. Uh, this is Brooklyn. Come on, you guys. I know. Does that not? You guys I... left a comic book store to come here. What are you doing? You can also name drop some of the shows he's written for. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, he uh, worked on Lost. Um, there's... Small show you may have heard of. Yeah, uh, the television show Runaways is based on a comic book that he... Uh, that he created. Um, I'm trying to remember. I, I don't have his IMDb. That's all right. We're it's, doing great. He's a very nice guy. He's a very, very sweet, sweet gentleman. Um, and super yeah. talented. I love your show, HBO Problem Areas. I wanted to ask, like, what do you feel like you can get out of talking to people? First of all, I just want to highlight, if you have not seen HBO's Problem Areas, one of the greatest parts of it, and what I think sets it apart, is that you really shine light on... Um, political activists who are on the ground um, in a way that no other show does. Oh, thank you. Um, and I really, it, that is our way forward. If you are interested in a way forward and you really go in depth into look at um, everything, mainly the prison system, but all different kinds of socioeconomic issues from homelessness to sexism and, and all of these different uh, systemic issues that we face. What do you feel like you can get perhaps that a journalist might not be able to? I mean, for me, yeah, I'm not a journalist, so I think my approach to it is always about the sort of human element of things. I, I think with the show, the first season, our focus was looking at policing in America and what does police reform look like in America, and it took us to 10 different cities to look at different ways that community, uh, legislators, law enforcement, all have a stake in trying to make change. And I think when you put that human element to it, what you see is that the issues in New York aren't that different than the issues in Los Angeles, aren't that different than the issues in Birmingham, Alabama, aren't that different than the issues in Seattle, Washington, or uh, you know, Oklahoma. And if you can see that and recognize that, there might be things that exist as far as ways forward that exist in a place like Oklahoma 
that could be replicated for a place like Los Angeles or could be replicated for a place like New York or Seattle. And so it's really just about those human connections to see why that stuff matters to people. And then perhaps in seeing why it matters, it then uh, how they're doing things, how they're affecting change, how they're making things uh, move forward. It's like, oh, okay, maybe... I could do that too, or maybe we should have that in our city. Um, and so that was kind of the impetus for making a show like this. Um, and then also because I'm not a journalist, I can uh, just say dumb shit and no <laughs> one's expecting any more of me than dumb shit. And, and play on words like why it matters. Sure, yes, yeah. That could have been another title if you do a spinoff. Uh, they, uh, you can keep it was that. definitely a name that was pitched. Is, oh, sorry. Is no, no. Uh, yeah, at one point, because I initially was going to call the show Public Affairs. Uh, it was going to be called Wyatt Snacks Public Affairs. And the logo for the show are these two little, uh, kind of like, uh, little circle faces. And that's the logo that we have for the show now. But... Uh, it was also the logo when it was public affairs, and the idea uh, with the opening credits was that they would wind up like hooking up in different Aww. ways to start each show because it's like public affairs are obviously like the civic issues that uh, exist in the world, but also a public affair would be like two married people who aren't married to each other hooking up at a steakhouse. Yeah, or just or France. Right. Yeah, or France. Yes. Yeah, or a French steakhouse. Yeah. In France. In, oh, that sounds really good. Yeah. Now that you get to have this forum for public affairs, that you get to, to share these issues, do you feel like more compelled to do more of this? Or do you like, oh, I miss acting and I miss writing and I want to do m- more of, of that kind of stuff? Although you obviously are writing in this as well. I mean, I'm writing on the show. I'm performing on the show. This is the stuff. I meant acting. I, I've, I've never seen myself as much of an actor uh, I kind of feel like any acting I've done in my career is stuff that, like, uh, I kind of walk away from it thinking, like, all right, we all got lucky there. Uh, <laughs> it's like when a cab driver delivers a baby. And it's like, all right, yeah, that could have gone any number of ways. But you know what? It worked. Sweet. All right. And... That's how I've always kind of approached it. Um, I have a great respect for actors, and I think the work that they do, that's just work I never put into it. I put the same amount of work a cab driver does into learning how to deliver a baby. (laughs) I didn't, I like, if I did any jobs, I learned my lines 10 minutes before we shot. Oh, wow. And if I didn't know him, it was like, eh, it's, it's usually an independent film, so... Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The stakes aren't that high. That like, <laughs> eh, from take to take, yeah, this is fine. We only paid him $1,000. So, yeah. Well, and not $1,000 a day. That's $1,000 for the whole job. For the whole job. Thing. Yeah, most of the films I've done are not... They weren't big money makers for the film or for me. Um, yeah. But it's also freeing, because then you can just do them when you want to. 
I like getting to do that. And so I, again, I, anything I've ever done where I've been an actor in it, I've always gone into it thinking, you know, you should get this other person. They'd be great for this part. <laughs> and I've said that to different people for jobs where I've either said to the producers or the director, like, you should really hire this person. I think they would really kill this. And then also reached out to some of those people and said, hey, did your agent send you out for this oh. thing? You should go in for it. And because it's not like there are people who want to do this and it's like, oh, you all should do it. Like, and I think in my head, you'd be better at it than me. I I'm love- just a cab driver delivering a baby. I love also that you like go to bat for for other people and go the extra way because I know that Colin Quinn um, did that for you when you were starting out at SNL and I'm glad to see that you are carrying on that tradition. Yeah, um, I mean, I was an intern at SNL and I, uh, but Colin suggested me for a writing position there and Colin was uh, just a tremendous person. For is me. a tremendous person. Yes, is a tremendous person, but I think when, as a 19-year-old intern, uh, he was a tremendous person in my life uh, to give me the confidence that, okay, I could actually work in this business. I had no other connection to it. I was in college in North Carolina and got this internship, and he, and Colin has continued to be a person who has just been this like serendipitous, wonderful, uh, wonderful kind of uh, human being for me when I decided it was time to move on from The Daily Show. I was uncertain and randomly, as I was walking to work, I ran into Colin on the street. And it was a rainy day and Colin took the time, the same time he would take from me when I was 19 to just, like, mentor me and talk to me about stuff. He took that same time on a rainy day uh, to talk to me about the decision I was making, and we went and we stood under the awning of a Hooters uh, (laughs) at, like, I don't know, 8.30 in the morning. So for anyone walking by, we looked like two guys who really needed to get into a Hooters because they're not open for breakfast. So we just looked really like, those guys really want some buffalo wings and ladies in tank tops. Uh, but he uh, he talked to me, and we had a lovely chat. And so he and I, have, uh, I I'm so grateful that uh, for his friendship and that he's been a person that, you know, at, now for 23 years... Uh, he's been a, a person in my life. So, yeah. Uh, Give it yeah. up for Colin, for Colin Quinn. Quinn. And I, I love every every part of that. I'm so glad that he encouraged you to believe in yourself. And the truth is, is when you're making these uh, hard question, hard decisions where there's no right answer, uh, you need someone to be able to, to be able to just talk about these things. And I cannot provide a Hooters, but I can provide a hipster um, hologram type of amazing... Don't umbrella. open that inside! Um, although, no, I can't even open it. That's my athletic skills. Okay. Um, maybe you can. I'm going to let you. Well, thank you. But it is raining outside, so I wanted to, okay, to thank you. get yeah. you this gorgeous umbrella, as well as um, a um, graphic novel that I'm not sure if you have already read. Have you read this? I've not, no. Friday Black, I've heard very, very good things. Um, you will let me know if it's good. Sure. Um, you can wear this. Parks. Are you single? 
I am, yes. Okay, definitely wear this Park Slope co-op bag. Um, it'll really help bring Because in someone will want to use my co-op membership or something? They'll just want to sleep with you once they see you with this bag. Okay. And know how caring you really are. As well as some unicorn snot glitter sunscreen in case you get another uh, season of the topic show. Unicorn snot? And it's also sunscreen. You're okay. welcome. You're right. welcome. Thank you. Um, and some Russ and Daughters, can you stay out while we have our award ceremony? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I want to just give... Wyatt Senak, a lot of love because I adore him personally and professionally, and I want to encourage everyone to check out Problem Areas. Wyatt Zenak is a delight, and I was so thrilled to have him back because we actually recorded an interview. Employee of the Month has uh, been running for nine years, so you should definitely go check out our, our back catalog. But you will not be able to find my interview with Wyatt Senak on it. We taped it at Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. I did the live show there for four years monthly and had him and Jody Cancer um, on that show. Although you can hear a second follow-up interview I did with Jody back then. Uh, Nagin is an exceptionally funny, smart, thoughtful comedian. And when we started out, um, I will say that it was really hard. You had to sort of pick a lane. And particularly as a female, they'd be like, wait, I don't understand. You can write and act. And then you'd have to kindly, without being condescending, say, I can also brush my teeth and wash my hair. It's incredible all the different activities I can do. I was thrilled to have her. She was also, in addition to being an exceptional comedian, she was exceptionally pregnant when she came on the show. I'm just going to leave it as a teaser whether or not she gives birth while we're recording this interview. Here's my interview with Nagin Farsad. You are about to give birth, and I am hoping that you are going to give birth on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm really close. Uh, I'm about to pop, you guys. And yeah, I'll let you know if I feel anything weird. I tried to have you on the live show just in case, like, that the I excitement <laughs> like, <laughs> led the water to break. <laughs> you know what's weird is about being on live shows as a stand-up comic is that um, in the last month, my heavy breath, like, I think something about the adrenaline and being in front of an audience or what, and the, like, pregnancy ha- has led to, like, some very severe panting on stage. <laughs> like, I'm just like a French bulldog on a stage, like, doing, delivering jokes. It's really weird. I often giggle, and it's on one level, I'm like, great. The fact that I can laugh, like, leave it in, you know? And then in other ways, I'm like, oh my God, I must be irritating everyone. But yeah. there it is. There yeah. it is. You yeah. pant, I giggle. What can you do? <laughs> <laughs> so, similar to me, you actually started out in, in policy. Uh, I understand you were a policy advisor for the city of New York. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, where were you working? I was working at the Campaign Finance Board. Um, so I, I dealt in uh, campaign finance. We actually have like a very beautiful system here in New York City of campaign finance. Uh, What's that? that helps. It... <laughs> I know it's like it's 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 a model for the country that nobody cares about. Um, but we have it. It's really leveled the playing field. It's made it possible for like candidates who would never be able to you know run for office. It enables them to run for office, uh, and uh, and it's it's really quite amazing. But again, the rest of the country has not followed suit yet. And it was funny to adjust when I dropped out of my doctorate and went into entertainment Mm -hmm. and to see how little people had to do in their internships and their jobs. Like it was like such a profound shift because I was given way too much uh, responsibility, including like being in charge of, you know, million dollar budgets and and the staff when you're 22 years old. Right, right. It's just remarkable how much people's jobs vary 
Yeah, like like that. There's so much consequence in one of them, and like nothing, no (laughs) consequence at all. There's no comedy emergencies that are gonna like stop the election from being free and fair, you know, or whatever. Uh, Yeah, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. No, and which is not to say, obviously, like I've, you know, live in entertainment and I love it and it's what I do or whatever, and I obviously believe in it at some level. But you, it is definitely not as urgent as the work of like most of public service it was hysteric like i remember you know in foster care either a kid got a bed or didn't get a bed right a place to sleep that night and then when i worked at a certain film company which i won't mention the name of it rhymes with earwax and um <laughs> it was like this huge fight over whether j-lo should have a private plane <laughs> every expletive in the book was used about how this was a massive emergency and it was it was culture shock i have to say yeah um, yeah it's just uh uh, it's a completely different you, – it, it puts things in perspective. So when did you make the leap? I moved to the city. I went to grad school, but at night I was doing stand-up. Um, you know, and I, I was at I was at Columbia School of International and Public Affairs with some really serious people who were getting like policy degrees, and I was getting a dual degree with with um, African American studies. So I was with just serious people all day long, who were like, "Let's form a study group." And I was like, "That's really cute, you guys." But like, I have a set downtown, so like, I've gotta go. Um, so I feel like I had a foot in both realms, just. For many years um, until I, I, you know, I got this job working for the city and it was a career track job and I was wearing pantsuits. Um, and at a certain point, my friends staged an intervention and they were like, you want to be a comedian? Snap out of it, you know. And I, I did. I think I mean, that's the thing about public services. Um I really believe in it. I, I I thought, you know, like the agency I was working in was was fantastic and did such great work. Um, I I thought about like, oh, wouldn't it be great to work in other aspects of city governance, state government? Um, you know, wouldn't it be fantastic to run for office? Like, I had all of those feelings, but I didn't like. I didn't actually enjoy the work. The work itself. <laughs> yeah. I had this very puritanical. Um, sense that either you're doing the real work in sort of a Maslow hierarchy of needs, like either you are ensuring that kids in foster care are getting health care and getting these things, or you're doing comedy and entertainment. And I I kept this sort of separation of church and state. Right. um, Even though I'm I'm not technically uh, going to any churches. Um, But so I'm a long way to say I I very much admire that you didn't. You somehow managed to integrate the two. the beginning, I I, di- I couldn't integrate the two as much because I needed to prove that I could do, you know, I, I needed to prove that I could walk into like um, MTV or whatever and write like 22 jokes about Nick Jonas's abs or whatever. You know what I mean? I needed to prove that I had those skills. Um, and I did. Uh, but then I, eventually I, I did manage to like merge them by doing um, – I made, I made a movie called The Muslims Are Coming. Um, I, yeah, let's talk about the premise of that. Okay, so I, I basically rounded up a bunch of Muslim-American comedians in a but nonviolent you- way. And we went around the country to places like, um, you know, Alabama and, and Tennessee and Arizona and, you know, just uh, 
um, places where Muslims are extremely popular. And uh, and we did shows and we called the tour the Muslims are coming and we filmed everything. And then we got like some people like, you know, John Stewart and David Cross and Lewis Black to just say hilarious things about Islamophobia. Uh, we turned that in, into a film and then, it, you know, it, it made its little theatrical run and, uh, and, and went on to Netflix. And uh, and we fixed Islamophobia, Katie. Yeah, no, <laughs> there, it's, it's done. done. <laughs> we thought it was like the, the height of Islamophobia, and it yes. and it wasn't. You know, it was it could, it could get worse. The numbers of for hate crimes could get worse. Everything could get worse. Um, we didn't. We never envisioned a Muslim travel ban. You know what I mean? When we were making the movie, so in some ways, it was like it was like well ahead of its time. Um, and also still so very naive. At you yes. know, at the same time, totally. It's so which is so strange. Uh. And I think, you know, and I think, like, like, the people are like, what is the point of you doing things like that? Because I also that turned that movie then also turned into a lawsuit that I waged against the uh, New York City uh, Metropolitan Transit Authority. Uh, can you um, talk? About, can you elaborate as to to? Yeah. So how the that MTA basically was had allowed these like anti-Muslim posters to go up in the system um and we thought oh why don't we promote the movie and say if have like some fun muslim posters go up and it'll be kind of like uh promote the movie but it'll also be a response to these this hate group that had spent over three hundred thousand dollars you know on those posters and in the mta in new york city this is not an unmeaningful market. I mean, it, it sees over 5 million people a day. So there's a lot of eyeballs on these things. Um, and so we didn't have the kind of money that that hate group did. But we did figure out that the minimum ad buy at the MTA was $20,000. So we raised that online in like wow. two days. And uh, and then we worked with them. And we had a bunch of poster designs. We worked with them for several months. Um, it took forever. Like they were really, you know, they were like, you can't use this font. You can't use this color. You can't use this word. Like they wouldn't let us use the words like poop or penis, which cut out like half of our material, you know, so we were just, but we worked with them at every turn. We were like nice, kindly Muslims that were very easy to work with. And um, until finally they approved the posters. And then two days after they were supposed to go up, I got a call from MTA lawyers that were like, uh, your posters are too political. They're not going up. And um, and so then we had to sue them. I mean, we didn't have to, but like that felt like what we needed to do. And, uh, and was that's, it successful? And it was. It took a year and a half, and it was in fact successful. Yeah, we won. Uh, you know, and we won because we because the judge said, like, basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but she was like, "Come on, you guys." Like, there's no, like, we're not at that point where just mentioning the word Muslim or Islam is political. And if you look at the ads, I mean, the ads are ridiculous. They say, they say stuff like, you know, uh, you know, the, the ugly truth about Muslims. They have great frittata recipes. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just like ridiculous, ridiculous stuff that that's meant to be fun and, and funny and, and, and provide a counterbalance. And so people were sort of like... You, because because waging that kind of a lawsuit, it's very, you know, it's annoying. It's demanding. You know, we had these wonderful pro bono lawyers. We worked with this wonderful organization called Muslim Advocates to make it happen. But it took up a lot of time and people were like, why are you doing this? You know what I mean? Like, you're a comedian. Like, this is like taking up time from you, your other goals in life. Um, like, let's say earning money, if that's ever a goal of yours. And I was just like, you know, it's I'm not delusional that a bunch of posters are going to make people change their minds about Muslims. But I do think it puts a 
very, very small dent in the process. And then and you add up those dents over time and that equals some measure of change. Well, I do think it makes a profound change, actually. I remember being a young kid and someone coming to my school and speaking about having HIV and AIDS and you can shake my hand. And it was like, boom, done, you know, yeah, for the rest of my life. Learned it. Learned it. It's yes, there. Yes. And, and understanding our shared humanity and that we're just people. Yes. And I, so I actually do think it is. I, they had a terrific um local campaign about having disabilities and how do you talk to someone with a disability? And the whole campaign is just sort of famous celebrities being like, hello? Like, yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> and then is a human who happens to have, uh, you know, whatever, whatever yeah, it is. I mean, I think you don't know when you embark on these things like you're no, you no longer own it, right? You sort of do a thing and you hand it off to people and it hits them either not at all like they completely ignore it and they don't care or it had it it gets lodged into their memory somehow and it has a and it has an influence so uh i think you know that's i i have to believe it does something have you experienced uh either backlash on one end in entertainment mm-hmm. from from being very vocal about your politics mm-hmm. i mean it's interesting because i think um in the world of stand-up, it's, uh, you know, there's people who are very, very vocal about politics. Like, we, you know, we we know the John Stewart's of the world. You know, we know the John Oliver's of the world. And they're, that's their whole, their role. And I'm... Uh, Mort Saul. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Old school ref. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... But you know, so so we're we're and I think we're more used to that cadre of cadre uh, of what is the correct pronunciation of that word? Cadre. Nobody knows cadre. No, I know. Okay, it's, it's cadre. cadre. Sorry, I said cadre, um, and because I was being very French. Uh, but I th- I think basically the, nowadays there's such a huge thirst um, and acceptance of like political comedy or whatever and I might and I'm thrown into that bucket sometimes um I think though sometimes when we're dealing with just straight up like you know like I, I did a show in in Kansas City at the improv and it was like if it felt like the most mainstream thing I had done in a long time where yeah. I was just like where I was performing in a swing district like where they didn't necessarily even want to hear anything political. They yeah. were uncomfortable with it. I had to switch gears and talk about dating. You know what I'm saying? Like Which as a pregnant married woman was actually really <laughs> interesting. <laughs> um so I think I you know, I, I think like sometimes it, it, it does turn people off. Like there's there you've heard people be like, Oh, comedy is for me to laugh. I don't want to hear about you don't make me eat broccoli, you know? And that happens. And then other times you're like, can I give you some broccoli with um, like doused in a bunch of cheese? Like, how will that we maybe we can make that work uh, in my TED talk. I, uh, uh, I in which one of your TED talks? <laughs> Shut your face. I'm embarrassed. Um, I describe social justice comedy as like making you feel like you're sitting inside of a burrito because you're like learning, you know, um, there's sustenance to it, but it's also warm and gooey. <laughs> Thank you and good night. I'll see myself out. <laughs> the look on your face was like, get out of my face. <laughs> How to make white people laugh. Mm. 
Well, I was joking because I just didn't laugh. (laughs) What was the inspiration for how to make white people laugh? I'm trying to be as serious as I can. I'm trying to be as like excessively Uh, deadpan and monotone as possible. I like. I mean, I just it was. I was trying to figure out what I had been doing all these years. And I was like, oh, I think what I've been trying to do, whether or not it's been successful. It's been very successful. Is tr- figuring out how to make white people laugh. because, And then be, and the, basically the, like, shtick of this title is that, like, white people control a bunch of stuff, right? It sounds like you were simultaneously doing social justice comedy and writing fiction and writing this, you know, features and, and television mm-hmm. pilots and and. Can you talk a little bit about Third Street Blackout and how that came to be? Yeah, you know, um, I so I had done um, three feature docs uh, uh, up to that point. One was on skateboarding. One was on no ner- nerdcore rap. One was on uh, ukuleles. One was on and one was on sitar. <laughs> <laughs> Close. Close. Um, a Cricket in the Court of Akbar, Nerdcore Rising, and, and the Muslims are coming. And then, um, and I, you know, but I I grew up on romantic comedies. I mean, I love romantic like a You grew up in California. Southern California. Southern California. A good romantic comedy. I mean, come on. Uh, and, and so I really wanted to uh, make one. And... Um, you know, I had a, this experience in uh, with Hurricane Sandy, uh, which led to like a five day blackout in um, in Manhattan up to like all of lower Manhattan up to 40th Street. And I had like romantic shenanigans during that blackout. So it felt like a great premise for a romantic comedy was just set in this blackout. So we basically, um, you know, I, I made this movie with uh, Jeremy Redleaf and, and Andrew Mendelson and uh, Ryan Cunningham, a bunch of really great people. And uh, and we, yeah, so we basically took this this weird historic moment. And I don't know if you're here for that blackout. Blackouts are amazing. Yeah. In a... Uh, in and I get that they're also horribly inconvenient way, but like they're amazing. I, I, There's luckily, something really otherworldly and during the blackout in New York, yeah, it brought the city together. Oh it was really God. fun, and there were a lot of births nine months later. And yeah, I have to say, I was totally. really jealous of those people. Blackout boning, total thing. <laughs> um, and, and it's and I think and it's funny because it's not even like coincidental it's like you turn off the devices people are forced to make eye contact that eye contact occasionally turns into boning you know it just makes a lot of sense but it all it just there was these impromptu parties at bars there was um you know musicians that were just flooding the streets being like we're gonna just play music because people don't have anything to listen to music on or whatever you know and it was i i just i i got to meet all my neighbors i I thought like this is Probably the life that we would have led if we had lived in New York 20 years prior or whatever. And I was born too late. You know, it's also I got to work with like a bunch of really great comics from the, you know, the in the city. People like you mentioned, John, uh, John Hodgman and Janine Garofalo, but also people like Ed Weeks from the Mindy Project, the like hot British guy. Did I have to make out with him? Yes. Uh, is that so fun? So when you when you it's were... actually well, he's like my friend. So I oh. actually felt like it was gross, but like I I can see objectively that it was a uh, you know an enviable position to have to make out with Wait, him. What happens when you're in a in a movie or television show or play and you have to make out with someone and then there's like no chemistry? 
I never thought about that. Uh, well, I, I don't know because everyone I've ever worked with has tremendous chemistry with me. <laughs> <laughs> so that has has not been an issue. No, luckily I haven't. E- I mean, actually, find like the, on the on screen makeout really traumatizing. Like I, it's so embar- I find it extremely embarrassing. The like hot starlet girls or whatever. I don't I barely ever have to do it, but the hot starlet girls that have to do it all the time. Like I do not know. I it just makes me so embarrassed. Well, the, the hard part is like I consider myself a highly sensual human being. There's something about <laughs> you're losing sensuality right now, Katie. Just in the studio, the studio can barely handle the heat you're generating. <laughs> but I, I, the idea of wanting to sort of create that sensuality or evoke that sensuality while they're all of these camera people. I mean, there's so many people oh, on the so set. Ridiculous. Even when there aren't that many people, yeah. there still are there, and so it's. Also, because I didn't grow up in the era of social media, there's also that element of like, this is weird. Whereas, yeah. like, I wonder if younger <laughs> yeah. people now they're like, this is the norm. Usually, my parents are watching me when I'm waking out. Right. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. No, there's so many people. It's funny too because even if there's not that many people in the room, let's say they're they're they able to limit the number of like uh, people shooting inside, there is another room where there's multiple screens of you attempting to make out with someone. It's just like you want to kill yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you know either way there's dozens and dozens of people watching you attempt this embarrassing feat. I think you and I both have a portfolio career where we do a bunch of different things. Um, And it's interesting to cycle in and out of stuff. Like I was so in a making a movie every two years kind of um, uh, pattern. And now, uh, you know, I I don't I I am doing more short form stuff. I'm focusing more on stand up. You know, I'm you know, I'm focusing more on television. You know, we're always we're always in the process. I have uh, sold TV, but I have that has not been made. So I'm one of those people. Oh, we all are. The the person whose uh, scripts are sitting on a shelf kind of guy. Um, And so hopefully we'll get one of those scripts off of a shelf and onto a screen. And we can delete me saying, oh, we all are. But but I, what I did want to say is that it, it's really hard. I mean, 2018 was an extremely challenging year for me because I had various things in development that may or may not go anywhere. Oh, it's, I mean, it, it was I, think, I think you're part of the entire career is learning to live with that weight. And learning to just be patient for, you know, this may or may not work. Someone may or may not buy this. Or, And then the other st- sad thing is, like, they, you get to a point where you're actually earning mo- You know, you actually have money in your hand from Tell a script. <laughs> like, people are actually – there's been contracts. Like, things have been signed. And, then, and you put a ton of work into writing some beautiful script or several episodes in, in, in a case that uh, involved me. Uh and then they pull the rug out. Yes. I mean, there's so many chances for them to pull the rug out and for you to feel awful um, and 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 to be really connected to a, a thing, you know, like any I mean, you can feel that way um, about any project. Like anyone knows what that feels like when you've been working on something and you're like, oh, my God, this thing. And you get yourself psyched up about it and you're excited about it. And then it doesn't ha- like and then the final piece of it doesn't happen or something. It's very tough. And to lose something you've been working on like that 
person or that studio or that network yeah, yeah. or that producer yeah. owns whatever yeah. you were working on. And yeah. so you may have to buy it back. I mean, Or it's like, you have to wait for <laughs> some period of legal time to go by as this weird thing happens. Uh, which is, I also want to point out, a great privilege that, like... Oh, that I get to experience any of that. I, just I would love to experience like all to, of it. Yeah, and complain about it. <laughs> yeah, I, so I, I don't mean to sound like a yeah. Like I didn't a know you could do one or not the asshole. other. Oh no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you could complain about okay, it, right? And be desperately thankful every time it happens. Yeah, no, or, exactly. You know. I'm desperately thankful, <laughs> and I want to complain my face off uh, simultaneously. That's what's happening. Um, I do want to ask on that note: Have you had any just like? terrifying road gigs or or even here you know any gigs where you're just like what am i doing with my life and i cannot describe this to anyone i know well it's interesting because i i've mentioned that i mentioned this some reason i don't know where but i did a show in it was out it was like 2 hours outside of seattle i forget the name of the town i keep meaning to look it up I don't even know why they brought you me out really there. You don't really keep meaning to look it up. Otherwise, you would have. No, I know. It's just like I can never remember to do it. when. It, anyway, it doesn't matter. Almost, it's, it's near Seattle. It's, it's, it's two more? hours outside of Seattle. And uh, and uh, and it had there was this beautiful theater. And it's it was strange. It was a very, very Christian town. Yeah. But this was really interesting because like the main street it was like Christian bookstore. And then it was like Christian oh, wow. laundromat. <laughs> and then it was like Christian bodega. You know what I mean? It was like very, oh. each sign proudly um, displayed that. And I was like, oh, this is so interesting. Um, and they had this beautiful theater, whatever. And I get to the theater and they're protesting me. There's a group of people, 20 people or something, protesting me. And they're holding signs like, don't go to the show or whatever. And um, Islam is evil or whatever. And and I realized, I thought, oh, they re- thought I was going to try and convert people, which is super hilarious. Yeah. Um, and I was like, you couldn't even handle a lawsuit in terms of time time commitment. <laughs> I, know, I, know. I don't know if you're going to be spending much time converting. Oh, I know. What am I going to have followers now in Islam? <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense. Just like I got to go. Um, More Excel and so, <laughs> you know, the organizational uh, element is just too much to handle. So I went, and, and of course it's raining, right? Because we're in Washington State, and um, and I go up to these guys, and I was like, "Hey guys, like, um, do you want to come in and watch the show? And you could sit in the back, and then come and protest me right when I wrap up. You can run back out and keep protesting me or whatever." And they were like, "No, thank you, but we might sit in the lobby or whatever." And I was like, "You know, you should at least get out of the rain, and I'll, you know, we're." We're in the same place Twilight was filmed, and so the shapeshifters will be coming out any second. Like, it's dangerous. Um, and so I, I thought, I was like, this is so, and of course I did my show, and the show was great, like, no problems, um, really fun. And I thought, this is like, this is exactly everything about America boiled into like one moment, which is that um, I have the right to do shows <laughs> and and to be as threatening as uh, a cartoon character. I mean, I don't th- I think if you saw what I look like, you'd be like her, like a you very know, you're sophisticated pro- cartoon character. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, but like, you know, I just I'm just like I'm five foot three and a half. Like, what am I going to do to you? You know what I mean? Um, but I think that's what's interesting is that I have the right to do my thing um, and people have the right to come and enjoy it. And then people also have the right to protest it. It's like great. Like I think it's great. I don't – it's not – obviously 
it doesn't feel awesome to be protested or to get death threats or whatever. Like none of that stuff is like feels great. But like um, you don't get scared with the death threats. Well, there's some death threats when it's like it depends on the delivery mechanism um, where I do get a little scared. Um, But I think. You know, but like a t- a death threat over a tweet is, I think, more just unpleasant than it is actually scary. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I have levels of fear yes, for for right. the for hate mail and stuff like that. And the fact of the matter is, like those protesters were nice about it. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's what I. That's what I. I love that you just said. That. Yeah, yeah. I. I don't. You know. I don't mind. I. I mind people who bomb clinics. Yes. That's like not appropriate, <laughs> you right. know, um, or who who make it menacing uh, for for people to enter a space or whatever. Um, but there's ways of us like being able to live with each other's um, with each other's protest. Well, I have to say I'm very excited to see you on high maintenance. I was only slightly disappointed that you didn't give birth right now, but I'm very, <laughs> I'm very hopeful and excited for you, and and wishing you um, a happy new chapter. And uh, once your child is is you know, either potty trained or asleep, uh, we'll have to have you back on oh. employee of the month to hear how you are doing. Thank you so much, Katie. And by the way, Katie is a regular on Fake the Nation, I so if you show. like hearing her voice. You will uh, you will hear it uh, on Fake the Nation um, uh, periodically because we love having her on. Thank you. Thank you for being the employee of the month, Nagin Farsad. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. If you are going to be in Utah, if you're already in Utah um, or at Sundance, Please come to see Employee of the Month live. The live show, Objectively Speaking, is a super-duper special fun ride. Uh, We will be there January 25th uh, of the new year. Gosh, I'm looking forward to that new year. Wasn't that so great that I used gosh just in case you uh, have children listening? Or maybe you are a child. I am uh, emotionally immature, so that sometimes counts. Anyways, I want to thank Wyatt Senak. I want to thank Nagin Farsad. I want to thank all of you for listening. And I want to just give a shout-out to The Bell House, where Wyatt's and my interview was recorded live, as well as my band, starting with my intern, Chris Shockwave Sullivan, as well as my intern's intern, Andrew Jelly D. Bancroft, Eric Biondo, Camille Harris, our live illustrator, Michael Arthur, our special guest who sang that evening, Ashley Perez Flanagan, Leanne Mokia, who has been my producing partner for years, and to our sponsors, who I am just so indebted to, Russ and Daughters, Factory, E for Effort Editions. Go check out Factory, F-C-T-R-Y, E for Effort Editions if you want to get really special, cute, fun gifts. Uh, Russ and Daughters, and of course, to Slate. I'm Katie Lazarus. This is Employee of the Month. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. Have a good one. Time for our final guest wrap, wrap up. up. Guest number four for sure was all that. The masterful actor and writer Wyatt Zanak. Your generous spirit. Yo, we need this. Sharing your drink like your whiskey, Jesus. One of our favorite comics. We must be dreaming. I just whisked our show offered free dry cleaning. You're incredibly smart. Reporting's legit. But hey, you're still allowed to say dumb shit. So give it up, everyone. Hold your plaques up. Give it up, that's the end of the wrap-up. Drink your drinks and spark your blunts and give it up for the employees of the...